Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to another mini episode of Dear Prudence. I'm your host, Danny M. Lavery, and this show is for you, our Plus subscribers. Our guest this week is Claire Cox, who's a writer and high school teacher and author of the forthcoming novel Silver Beach. And now, here's our first letter. Oh boy, this next one. I'm I'm never thrilled when someone's like, I've had some problems with real-life people that I don't discuss, but I found a great community online. Uh Um, and I say that as someone who has spent a lot of time online, uh, and has found plenty of community there. I just, whenever it's presented as like good news, these strangers (laughs) on the internet understand me in a way my friends never could. I'm always Mm. like, oh, are you cruising for a bruising? Mm. Not not that your friends are going to beat you up. Sorry. I think I've misused that, that idiom. You are headed for possible trouble. Yeah. That's what that means. (laughs) Yeah. The subject is living a secret life. Dear Prudence, in my personal and professional life, I am extremely liberal. I work at a nonprofit, surround myself with liberal college-educated folks, and have many close friends of color. I am also non-white. However, in the past three or so years, I've gotten increasingly uncomfortable with the identity politics and tribalism of our country's political discourse. I feel like it's pushed me to lose basic empathy for folks based on their race slash gender slash other identities that are not minority identities. I hate this. I feel disconnected, and I've started to assume the worst in particular people. It doesn't help that I basically live in an echo chamber with people who refuse to engage in conversation. I've gotten shut down enough times, told that certain viewpoints are non-negotiable and, quote, violent, even when I'm just seeking to understand or ask questions. Last year, I turned to a popular social media site with many discussion boards, one of which criticizes identity politics from a leftist slash progressive standpoint. I feel so seen. It's a place where I can discuss class struggles without the weight of identity politics and where I can criticize the direction of American liberalism these past few years. I've been able to engage in deep and thoughtful conversations for the first time in years. I spend one to two hours a day on this site and I've found it makes me happier and feel more connected to people in my real life now that tribalism is not the forefront of every interaction. But I'm starting to feel like I'm living a secret. My husband, friends, and colleagues would be aghast that I participate in this message board. They often rail against people with views exactly like mine. Should I share what I've been involved in? What if I do that and it hurts my relationship? Would that be worth it? Please help. All right, in future, with questions like this, you got to tell me the name of the site. I won't publish it if you don't want me to, but like, are you in the comment section of Quillette? You know? Is this some Ayn Rand kind of stuff? Is it 4chan? You know, is it like what is the website? Is it Animal Crossing message boards? Like you must tell me what it is because I will have a different answer depending on what website you are spending two hours a day talking to people on. Yeah. I feel like depending on this space, I I sort of have two different answers. Do you want to start with one and then the other? So so the if if I accept the premise or assume the premise that this internet space is a genuinely healthy space where no one is engaging in harmful behavior, then I think it's important that this person says, I feel so seen. 
and that they've been able to engage in deep and thoughtful conversations for the first time in years. That actually feels important. That they don't feel seen or like they're engaging in deep and thoughtful conversations in their real life. And it's also interesting that time spent in this space allows them to feel more connected to people in their real life. Like like somehow that 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 part of themselves has air um, and they can just kind of focus on different aspects of their relationships with people in real life. Um, so like, is the voice in this person's head that's saying this is bad, the aghast voice, is this a voice that comes from the most judgmental corners of their community? And is is this a voice that they maybe should practice dissociating from and taking space from and sort of compartmentalizing a, a little bit to just give space to this thing that seems maybe liberating or healing or whatever? Um, and uh, are they participating in their community in a way that feels healthy and right? Are they Is their community full of people they really... Um, you know, uh, are, are good, healthy people to be with? Or are they hanging out with people who are super judgy and, you know, like, it's, are these relationships healthy? I, so so that's like a generous reading. That's like if if I'm just kind of believing what they're saying. But as with all internets, <laughs> it might be, I don't know. Like I, I if I knew what, what this space was, I might um, I might feel differently because there's this, if someone's participating in like an up t- upside down space that's really just bad for humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I certainly raised both of my eyebrows when I got to, it's a place where I can discuss class struggles without the weight of identity politics. Yeah. Because first of all, whenever somebody says that, they usually don't mean, at last, I can just talk about the black working class struggle. They mean white working class. Um, the implication there is, I think, quite clearly, class comes first, racial and other identities come second. Intersectionality doesn't exist in Islam. Or just like, what's the default identity? You know yeah. the one, that one, uh, yeah. that normal one that normal people are. So, you know, this fantasy that there is somehow an engagement with with class issues that can come without the lens of of, of race and racism and specifically anti-black racism in this country. And the letter writer describes himself as, as, as non-white. I don't know whether or not that encompasses blackness in any way, but I, I just, um, I think it is a fantasy to think uh, racial identity is a distraction from the real issue, which is class. I mean, if you look at the history of class in this country, <laughs> you know, uh, the transatlantic slave trade is indelibly bound up with the origins of capitalism in this country. You know, the 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 theft of land and attempted genocide of of Native American populations in this country. Like it's not, it's not like there was class struggle and then in the 60s a bunch of people said, let's throw mace, race into the mix just for fun. So <laughs> you know, yeah, whatever group of people is is doing this, and it's like, ah, oh, thank God we can just talk about Archie Bunker now. It's just like <laughs> I mean, by the way, when you're talking about Archie Bunker, you're talking about race, even if you don't admit it. Whiteness is a race. Thanks so much yeah. for bringing that up. It's an identity. <laughs> um, shockingly enough, you know, I would I would really, you know, critically look at the part of yourself that feels relieved when you talk about class struggles without the weight of identity. Which identities are you sick of hearing about? Mm. Which ones feel like a relief to get away from? What is the identity that feels like a safe, comfy default that you like thinking about and then also not thinking about how that's what you're thinking about? Mm -hmm. Ask yourself those questions. I can't answer them for you. I have some 
theories. I have some gut instincts, but uh, you're, you're going to have to do the work there. You know, th- this idea that being liberal means you hang out with a lot of people who went to college, you have close friends of color, and you work at a nonprofit. I, I'm not surprised you're feeling kind of exhausted by that idea of this is the this is the foundation of how I see the world. This is my foundation of how I create my politics. That sounds shallow and exhausting. Um, nonprofits I, I have talked about before on this show are not just like good companies that do good things. They're often you know hotbeds of exploitation and um, wild overhead. And um, incredibly, incredibly distressing interpersonal workplace dynamics. You know, mm-hmm. a friend who was just saying, like, uh, they were on a call earlier today. They work at a nonprofit. And they're like, well, we're on minute 20 of our opening grounding exercise. Oh my I don't gosh. want these fucking strangers to know anything about how I feel in my body right now. This is exhausting. You know, like, nonprofits are not just, like, the good thing you're supposed to like if you are, quote, unquote, liberal. Hanging out with a lot of people who went to college just actually means you have class solidarity with other college-educated people. I don't think there's anything especially conservative or liberal about that that's mm-hmm. just moneyed class solidarity. Yeah, you have a lot of close friends. That's great. I, 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 don't, I don't have a particular issue there. But those first two things, I think, are perhaps part of the reason that you feel exhausted is because you, you did not have a meaningful sense of you know, working-class solidarity that existed in your real life before this. And if the first place you're finding a sense of that solidarity is on the internet, it, it might be worth asking, how could I dedicate some of my time and energy and, and sense of community to real-life organizations that are working towards some aims that I think are valuable near me? Yeah, like how, how can I live my life in a way that embodies my values beyond spending time on a chat board talking about stuff that, you know, agreeing with other people? Not that that's like, you know, useless time or, or not meaningful, but um, I don't know. Like, I, I, I think there's some, there's some important ground to be covered beyond the internet space. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up too, because I feel like I, I came out swinging and I want to scale back a little bit and, and grant this letter writer a little bit more space. So, you know, it's really possible that part of the reason that you feel relieved and good on the site is because your friends have a habit of going into, you know, model UN mode in conversation and are quick to shout you down. Um, It may take you a little while longer to gather your thoughts when you're trying to discuss a particularly complicated issue um, or when you disagree with someone you care about. And so it may feel like a relief to be able to sit down and without having to deal with somebody else's immediate affect, you can write out your thoughts and consider them carefully and then wait for replies. That might Mm. be an indicator that there's something missing when it comes to the way that you talk to your friends. And I don't mean that it's your fault or their fault necessarily, just it might be an indicator that there's a a hunger or a desire on your part to have conversations that are less defensive or less shouty or less debate-oriented. And um, that would make a lot of sense to me. And, And I would hope you could go to your friends and share some of that with them and ask them to switch up the way they approach such conversations a bit. It might also be an indicator that you want to expand your circle of friends, um, maybe to include people who don't all just, you know, didn't all just meet at the same college and then go on to work for nonprofits. Um, and I get, sorry, I don't want to be like, go out and collect nine working class friends today. Like shake hands until you find somebody with calluses and say, you seem authentic. Will you be my friend? 
Um, so I apologize if it sounded really like cheesy or utopian or just like, go get someone. But um, yeah, there, there might be an indicator there that there's a, a need there that, that you're not yet getting fulfilled. Um, yeah, exactly. I don't know what viewpoints your friends have told you are non-negotiable or violent uh, when you are just trying to ask questions. There are some subjects where I would think that's a lousy thing for your friends to do. And there are some subjects where I would think, yeah, your friends are fucking right. You can't just ask questions about this. Like, yeah, there are certainly subjects about which like, quote unquote, just asking questions is a real dick move. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's hard to know where, what, what to say when you're not sure what the specifics are. Yeah, again, this, this is a letter that requires more specifics than it's prepared to offer. You know, it, it's also a lot easier to talk to people who are just on this same website as you and who disappear back into their own daily mm-hmm. lives when they log off just as you do. So uh, not to totally dismiss all of that, I'm glad you have found some connections. Again, assuming it's not on Quillette. But if you feel like you can be a better friend to your friends because you are scratching an itch that you can keep a secret from them and you are now able to do a better job of pretending to agree with them all the time, that I think is an indicator that you are heading for further conflict and further alienation. Um, yeah. If it means you feel slightly more capable of disagreeing openly with your friends, um, of asking for more patience or understanding, of trying to reorient some conversation, then then that might be a good thing. But I, I just don't know. Like, does your husband really say things like, man, anyone who wants to talk about class struggles without putting tribalism at the forefront is a fool? Or... Does he have other object? Like, is his objection the progressive angle of this critique, or his is is his objection of this critique something like this wants to return to whiteness as default and norm? And I don't want to do that. And I say all this right. with else, like, it can absolutely be exhausting if if all your friends begin conversations with like, well, as a woman, or like, well, as a trans person, and like, if that's like, as a trans person, I would like a BLT for lunch, like. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm not saying that you have to like agree with everything that they say or think. There may very well be ways in which they are exhausting, but you're never going to resolve that with them by complaining about their viewpoints to strangers on the internet. Yes, exactly. There's. It's very interesting that this experience has made you see kind of yourself in two forms. So who are mm-hmm. you? Who are you going to be? This might be a turning point. I don't know where it goes from here. Yeah, I mean, I think step one is trying to identify what feels good about this. Another one would be trying to figure out what you want to change uh, in your relationships with your friend and your husband. Another one might be whether or not you want to get out of the nonprofit world, which can be just so damn dysfunctional. It's not necessarily dysfunctional. There are wonderful nonprofits. I don't. That's wanna- a good point. Actually, thank you. I, I feel like I, I have just encountered enough letters where someone's like never considered the possibility that a nonprofit is not the exact same thing as its mission. Like Mm. you might be a nonprofit that is dedicated to helping people find housing, but that is not the same thing as uh, caring about unhoused people. But you're right. I feel like I want to be careful not to go so far over the the other end that I'm just like, if you work for a nonprofit, they're going to kill you and, (laughs) you know, reanimate your body uh, and exploit it in death. So- Thank you for that check. Workplaces are shitty. I don't care if you're at the top of a tall tower in Midtown or uh, working at the public school down the street. Uh, workplaces are shitty. Yeah, but thank you for catching me. I was definitely, definitely spinning <laughs> off the rails there. Um, yeah, so beyond that, yeah, you should probably start to share a little bit about what you've been involved in. You don't have to tell everybody everything right away, but yeah. you start with your partner. Try to figure out what are things that feel really important to you versus 
what doesn't. And um, yeah, if it hurts your relationships, the the gulf is already there. You know, it, it, it might feel painful, but it wouldn't be creating a problem. They already don't know a huge part about your interior experience. Right. So good luck. And write back and tell us the website, please. <laughs> For real. I want to know. I'm so curious. It was just like a train spotting message board. <laughs> Maybe. Just a bunch of people who are really into trains and sick of hearing about gay people. Oh, but that's, I don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> the look on your face was just like, oh, that'd be, that'd be a shame. Mm-mm. Would you please read our next letter? Yes. Subject, anxious about Alzheimer's. Dear Prudence, my grandfather passed away last summer after struggling with Alzheimer's for six years. It was horrible watching him become mean and cruel. I was barely involved in caring for him since I live so far away, but I felt anxious dread any time I had to be near him. I know that's wrong, and I should have spent more time with him, but I avoided him at all costs. I feel guilty about that, but it's over now. I'm terrified of the same thing happening to my dad. It seems like he's been having mood swings and minor forgetfulness lately, but I have no idea if this is normal from grief over losing his father or from early onset Alzheimer's. He's only in his early 50s. The forgetfulness hasn't been severe like it was with my grandfather, but I feel nauseous thinking about it potentially being a sign of something worse. If I bring it up to my dad, he'll just get annoyed and stressed. I know I'm probably thinking too far ahead, but I can't take care of my father if he gets it. I'm already burnt out from our dysfunctional home life. And if I have to hear my father spout bigoted insults like my grandfather did, I'll lose my mind. How do I come to terms with being a caregiver as my potential future? My mom will probably be around to help, but I know most of the pressure would be put on me out of all my siblings. Oh, man. Yeah, this one was really, really painful. I feel like my answer is, you can see it coming a mile away, which is I don't think you should accept the idea that being your father's full-time caregiver is inevitable simply because your family will probably exert pressure if and when uh, he either is diagnosed with Alzheimer's or some other condition that would require uh, full-time care. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying I am not a professional, full-time, medically licensed caregiver. And regardless of the fact that my parents raised me as a child, it doesn't provide me with any of those characteristics or that training. And I think especially if you know or have reason to believe that reduced inhibitions uh, would lead your father to say bigoted things that he's currently better able to uh, euphemize putting yourself in a position of being his full-time caregiver would be potentially quite dangerous for the both of you. Yeah. Um, it would be putting you in a lot of, uh, in the path of a lot of distress and it would probably inhibit your ability to properly care for him. Exactly. So I think you should not come to terms with that. I think you should come to terms with how am I going to tell my family I'm not going to offer him full-time care even though I fear that will be their expectation. That's what you should come to terms with. Especially since there are multiple siblings. Um, I mean, this, your father is, it really is comparatively young. Um, so, so why, why are they all assuming that it would be you who cared for him? Um, and I also, I, I really just want to say, I'm so sorry about what you went through and really feel for you. And it seems like you might need some support um, processing and, and caring for yourself in the um, aftermath of your grandfather's death. Um, what can you do to support yourself in giving yourself forgiveness and grace for your choices, which were a completely, they were completely reasonable choices. Yeah, I, I think that's a really 
good point, too, because I think if this letter writer is starting from a position of obviously I did something wrong in the way that I navigated my grandfather's death. Um, obviously, I have to make up for it. Obviously, I shouldn't have behaved that way. Um, there's nothing I can do about it now. So I have to make up for it in the future by putting myself in harm's way, by forcing myself to do something I'm neither equipped nor prepared to do. Um, right. Because, and that's just not true. Because family is about grinning through obligations and making yourself feel terrible. <laughs> um, and so I just want to say, you know, letter writer, your grandfather's death sounds really sad. Uh, his experience with Alzheimer's sounds really sad. And I think there can be a, a temptation to blame ourselves for really sad and distressing things because then we think there might have been a way I could have prevented it or it didn't have to be like this. And it's true that his death sounded isolating, isolated, lonely, embittered, and um, it put him in a position where he was not really able to accept or receive much companionship. That's awful. I'm sorry for that for him. But it, it does not therefore follow that it was incumbent upon his grandchildren to cheerfully ignore vicious, bigoted, racist, cruel remarks around the clock in order to, you know, watch a lot of TV with him or um, provide him with companionship that it's not clear that he wanted. He deserved good medical care. He deserved compassionate companionship from whoever was around him at that time. Um, that's not the same thing as his grandchildren should have been with him as often as possible, smoothing over everything um, and making sure that he was as cheerful as possible at all times. Right. You say I should have spent more time with him and I disagree. Yeah. I think you made a choice that was reasonable. And again, it doesn't have to mean that you feel good about it or that it was fun or easy or that his death was okay. It can just be really sad. He did receive care. He also became mean and cruel. And that made it really difficult for people to maintain close relationships with him. Again, that's really sad, but the answer to that is not because he has Alzheimer's, I can just magically not care when someone shouts insults in my face. And again, like that's kind of not that, God, not that like underpaid medical caregivers should have to cheerfully put up with it either. They are underpaid and overworked and, and under-resourced, but the difference between somebody who has a shift and has been trained to contend with and care for patients who are going through distress or who may be belligerent or angry, you know, they have, uh, they have supervisors, they have colleagues, they might have a union, they have training that they can call upon, they have emotional distance, this is not their relative. Um, they have tools in place to, to deal with that in a way that just like a well-meaning grandchild does not. There's a reason that this is a job. Yeah, those are really good points. So yeah, you felt really anxious dread about the idea of spending time with your grandfather who was mean and cruel. That makes sense. I get that it's sad. Please don't be too hard on yourself about that. When it comes to your fear about your father developing Alzheimer's, that one's hard. You, you, you know, you don't say whether you're very close to him. It's a little bit unclear whether your mother and your father are still together or you just think that she'd be able to come and step in if he were quite ill. So I don't want to make too many assumptions, but I would suggest that you share your concerns with your siblings and your mother. Um, I would say I've noticed some things in dad recently that make me worried that he, he's potentially at risk for early onset Alzheimer's. I also know that's a really sensitive subject to bring up and I'm worried about how to do it without making him feel more defensive. Have you noticed anything too? Do you think that I'm reading too much into just normal grief stuff? What do you think? Um, 
I think that's, you know, again, that's not necessarily going to be perfect. They might all disagree or they might say like, yeah, you're probably right, but none of us want to make him mad. And that would be difficult, but at least you won't have to feel like I'm the only one who knows this. I'm the only one who can think about it. I'm the only one who can make a decision. Um, potentially all of you collectively will feel more emboldened to have a difficult conversation with him than one or two of you would in isolation. And yeah, with, with stuff like Alzheimer's, early testing and early intervention can be really helpful. It's not a guarantee you'll be able to convince him to do it or even that it's a sure thing that he does have it. But, you know, if you have a relative who has recently died of Alzheimer's, hopefully you would have multiple conversations as a family about the possibility of other people getting it and what you might want in those circumstances and what would you want your relatives to know. You know, this this is maybe a conversation that you're going to have to have more than once, I'm afraid. Um, and I'm sorry, because I don't mean to like create this fog of anxiety that what if we all get it one after another? Um, I just think that one good entry point would be talking about we are all probably at higher risk um, and we should talk about our different interests and our different goals. You know, one person might say, I would really want to do early intervention. Please let me know if you ever see anything. Another person might say, I would rather not know. If that's hard for the rest of you, I get it, but that would be my preference. So do what you need to do to accommodate mine. Yeah. Yeah. And then just, you know, beyond that, you say you're already burnt out from your dysfunctional home life. So actually, let me scale a lot of that back because a lot of that sort of presumed a certain level right. of like healthy communication. Right. That was an important, important part. Yeah. If you've got a dysfunctional family and you feel really guilty about the possibility of being sort of distant and more happy, work on that guilt in therapy, work on it in a support group, work on it with your friends, but don't let that dictate your choices. Go ahead and keep pulling back. Yeah. You know, um, I don't, I don't care how sick uh, any anyone I'm biologically related to ever gets. I, I will wish them well from the you know general medical establishment and whoever may treat them. I will not be involved. That can bring yep. up feelings for me, and I can work through them. But I feel very committed to my sane and healthy decision. I would not be a good caregiver to any of those people. Uh, that would, uh, you know, I'm I'm not suited to that job. That's our mini episode of Dear Prudence for this week. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. As always, if you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. 